In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I was thinking this week about a great algebra teacher that I had in high school. I always liked him. I thought he gave the clearest explanations. He gave the most helpful assignments. And he was the first math teacher, and probably the only math teacher, to be honest, who made me really enjoy studying math. However, he had a classroom practice that made him really unliked in my school, and it made him notorious. After each math test that we took in his class, he would rearrange the seating chart based on the grade that you got on that test. Right, so students who failed the test were put up into the front row, average students with Bs and Cs were in the middle, and then A students were in the back row. And he never announced what he was doing. He never like, tried to overtly shame anyone. But students picked up on it and pieced it together pretty quickly. And they saw how the seating charts were arranged in the classroom. And so in that class, for many students, their seats became something of an obsession. They would study. They would pay attention. They would work hard because they did not want to be seen sitting with the bad students. They themselves didn't want to be seen as a bad student. They didn't want their identity to become smart kid, dumb kid, whatever. They wanted to be a kid in algebra. And so for these kids, algebra became a game of being seen as smart. It really had nothing to do with learning, though maybe some of them learned by accident. The whole class became about getting the right seat in the seating chart. And so I share this to make a connection with our gospel reading this morning. In Jesus' day, your public persona was tied up into a very clear black and white honor and shame society. And so what this meant was that for your social life and for your reputation and your family's reputation, you were always trying to build up honor for yourself. And it was of paramount importance that you avoided shaming yourself. And so public dinners like feast or wedding feast were opportunities for one to display one's honor on the social scale. If you were the guest of an important feast and you were seated next to the host, well, that's a big plus for you because that's the seat of honor. And if you were hosting a dinner and if you were to put a wealthy, well-connected person in a seat far away from you as the host, then it's a slap in the face to that person. You're shaming them. You're making a public statement about what you think about them and their honor. And on top of all of this, in that society, reciprocity was of the utmost importance. Of every gift, every favor had to be repaid. It would be shameful for you not to repay someone's generosity. For example, an invitation to a feast required that you plan to hold your own feast so that you could invite that person who invited you back. Every gift had a string attached. Every gift expected a return. Well, that's not really too different from the political reality we live in if we think about it, right? Large political donations are made not as free gifts, but that because donors expect something in return, right? They expect access to a politician or influence or some say on legislation, something like that. And that's really how things worked in the ancient world, except even on the most minute level, even among your neighbors, those in your community. And so society was a constant kind of game. 
how might you honor someone for your benefit? How might you yourself move up in the honor scale and up society's ladder? Who should you invite to dinner? Who should you send a Christmas card to and so on? Every public social interaction was carefully curated with the hope that you would get some kind of benefit out of it. But all of Jesus's life and ministry is subversive to this system. Jesus offers a different way to see the world. Jesus teaches us to see life not through a system of this for that. Instead, he invites us to see life through the lens of our future. He says that for whatever we do, we will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. In other words, the whole worldly game of trying to climb a social ladder is just peanuts compared to what is coming to us in eternity. And if that is true then, we have the opportunity to live completely different kinds of lives now. So Jesus illustrates this for us in two parables. First, he offers us a parable in which we are the guest and we're invited to a party. And he says, imagine you're trying to claim honor and you sit at the best seat at a wedding party and then someone better walks into the party. You're then removed from the seat of honor and you're put in the lowest seat and you have been shamed in front of, in front of everyone. And his point here is more than just practical etiquette. It's more than just advice about how to get ahead in life or how not to get behind. But it's a reminder instead that it's often the case that the attempt to climb the ladder of success is often a climb that will end in our shame. When you have to inflate yourself to the world, when you have a big ego, when you constantly take from others or befriend others in order for you to get ahead, you might sometimes look good to the world. Spiritually, however, you've brought shame to yourself. Jesus also then speaks to those of us who would act as host. He tells us not to worry about inviting guests who will bring us honor. Instead, he says to invite people who could never repay us anything. He says to invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Inviting such people will never help you advance in social circles. You will not receive any financial benefit from these people. They will not give you access to power. There's no benefit in inviting them on worldly terms. So why invite such people to the party? Why give up your seat of honor to someone else? Why opt out of the social game altogether? Because Jesus says it frees you. It frees you to live a life that is not framed by progress, but by compassion. The kingdom of God given to us in the person of Christ is defined by compassion. It's about grace. I had a professor who said the best definition of grace in the New Testament is not simply a free gift. Because so often in our worldly thinking, free gifts come with strings attached. Grace instead is that which breaks through reciprocity. It breaks through this for that thinking. Grace gives to the other simply out of a desire to give. It doesn't expect a favorable return. It doesn't even expect a thank you. Grace is to give for the sake of giving. Grace is to live in order to want good for someone else. Mercy is to allow someone to be free from the consequences they deserve. And so the kingdom of God is founded on that principle. As Christians, we live in view of God's grace. We know that God has claimed us. We know that God will raise us up from the grave on the last day. 
And we know that God has promised us an eternal life abounding in his goodness. Right? And none of that, God does not expect a return. He doesn't expect repayment. He has given to us out of the sake of his love, out of the sake to giving for our good. And so because we live in that grace, there's no need to get caught up in the games of this world. We can be compassionate for the sake of being compassionate. We can be gracious to others for the sake of being gracious. And in the end, why do we need to care about what the world wants from us? Why do we need to care precisely about what our reputation is in all circumstances? Let us be compassionate for the sake of being compassionate. Philip Yancey, who wrote a book called What's So Amazing About Grace, writes, the French philosopher Simone Weil wrote a book called Gravity and Grace, which describes two different ways of approach. The world runs by rules like gravity. As Isaac Newton studied the universe, he came up with fixed rules, like every action deserves an equal and opposite reaction. And so much in our life runs on that. Athletics runs that way. The economy runs that way, and so do politics, right? Stop making your car or house payments, and the bank will take them back. Bomb a country, and they'll bomb you back. But against that pattern comes a different pattern. From God, we deserve anger, but we get love. We deserve punishment, but we get forgiveness. Right? And there's something to that. So much of our world, so much of our day-to-day -day life runs on the gravity of ungrace. For most part, our lives run on payment, getting what we deserve. However, Jesus invites us to see the world in a new light. He invites us to see the light of grace breaking through all of that gravity of ungrace. And that's the true way we can begin to understand these parables that Jesus tells us. They're not strategies to get what you want. Instead, the parables themselves are pictures of who God is for us in the person of Christ. Jesus is the one who took the worst seat in order to give us a seat of honor. He is the one, although through him all of creation came into being, set aside his glory to become a baby born in a barn. He gave up the rightful luxurious crib that he deserved to be placed in a dirty manger. He lived an unassuming, humble life in Galilee, in the middle of nowhere. He calls 12 ordinary fishermen to be his disciples. And he is the one who takes on a humiliating death that he did not deserve. And he does all of this in order to secure salvation for us. And he pours himself out for us knowing that there's no repayment coming. Because what money what act of service, what sacrifice could we ever make? What could we ever give back to Christ for return of our souls? There's only grace. That's our only hope. Jesus, then, is the one who invites people to his table who will never repay him. He is the one who puts us in seats of honor through what he has done. We are rewarded with what we could never deserve. The fruit of the Christian life, then, is that we can ourselves begin to break out of the society's law of ungrace, of this for that. Our security, our identity, comes not from this world, but from the one who died for us. We, then, have the freedom to live out that compassion. There's nothing preventing us from loving for the sake of others. 
nor is there anything preventing us from inviting others to our tables out of compassion. And because of what Christ has done for us, our worlds are full of unlimited opportunities to show that compassion. Amen.